We're continuing the series of messages that we commenced some time ago in Paul's epistle to the Colossians. And as I have repeated a number of times, the book easily divides in our English Bible into two sections. You have the first two chapters, and you have chapters 3 and 4. Chapters 1 and 2 are basically, though not exclusively, to do with doctrine. And chapters 3 and 4 are chiefly, though not exclusively, to do with practice. So you have, if you like, doctrine and duty. And the two go together. We're still in that mostly doctrinal portion of the book, where the Apostle Paul is expounding the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And we noted last time what he had to say about the believer's position in Christ. Just as we read that Christ is one in whom dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead, so believers are made complete or made full in Him. Paul, therefore, is not only talking about the fullness of God in Christ, he's speaking of the fullness of Christ in the believer. And so, we were encouraged to consider those words of verse 10, and ye are complete in Him. This is the position of every believer. Yes, the fullness of God is in Christ, but the fullness of Christ is in the believer. Of His fullness have all we received, and grace for grace, or grace upon grace. I pointed out that the word complete refers to fullness. There is a connection, therefore, between verses 9 and 10. There is the fullness, or the Greek word is pleroma, of the Godhead that dwells in Christ. But there's a fullness that we enjoy in Christ. We are complete. What Paul is saying here is, according to the the Greek tense, ye are, or you have been, made full in Christ. What does that mean? It means that we don't need anything else but Christ. We don't need anything added to Christ to bring us into a proper relationship with God. We are complete in Christ. All that we need to stand righteous before a holy God is in Him. I pointed out that the word here is a word in the Greek language that's often used of a ship. A boat that is fully rigged, that is equipped for a long voyage, so that everything that is needed for that voyage is already on board. The ship is secured. It's ready for sea. It is complete. That's the word that's used here. We're voyaging forth on the ocean of life, and all that we need is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are complete in Him. In Christ there dwells all fullness. And so then that fullness is ours by virtue of our union with Christ. We are united to Him. We are one with Him. This is a beautiful thought. We are made full in Christ. But as well as speaking about this and various other aspects that I pointed out last time, From looking at the position of the Christian, Paul goes on to speak further 
about the power of the cross. It is obviously connected. It is obviously to do with our position in Christ. Why is it that we are made full in Christ? It's because of what he has done for us, chiefly on Calvary's cross. So what has he done? Well, verses 14 and 15 speak to us of the power of the cross. What has been accomplished by the cross work of the Lord Jesus. And that's really going to be our focus tonight. You'll see that he mentions here that Christ has not only, verse 13, forgiven you all trespasses, but that he has blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, that is, in the cross. Now I have to explain, really, what Paul is saying here. When he uses this term, the handwriting of ordinances, he's referring, obviously, to a handwritten document. I I do reflect sometimes these days that handwriting is a lost art. And we know why that is, don't we? It's because of all the devices that we have. And so instead of handwriting, you have people who are good at doing this. The thumbs are going, sometimes you wonder, how in the world do they do all that? But they're good at it. It's not really handwriting though, isn't it? It's not the same thing. I am old school in some ways. I know I'm trying to uh, live in the modern world and act accordingly. I have my devices as well as everybody else. But I still like to write handwriting. I still like to write notes to people. If, for example, uh, I need to write a card to somebody, I will do that. I will actually write a message on the card or a thank you or whatever it may be, I like to do it in handwriting. Because I spent a lot of time in school learning how to do all those beautiful loops and things, so I want to be able to practice it. And uh, I remember years ago when my wife and I were not wife and I, we were just going out together, and she was in the United States and I was in Great Britain, and we had those wonderful things called airmail letters, and I used to be looking out for that letter coming From her, it was handwritten. And I used to do the same thing in reverse and in my own handwriting, send her a letter. And you know something? There is something really special about something that's handwritten. Because when you look at it, you think, that's that person. I've got things that my mother wrote to me. She's been gone a number of years now. But there are books that I have in my library. And it'll say on there, to Stephen from Mom. Christmas such and such a time, or your birthday. And I can just, to me it's her, it's her writing, her handwriting. Handwriting uh, is a really great gift. But here the handwriting that's being referred to is, as was often the case in those days, an official legal document. So what does it mean here, the handwriting of ordinances that was against us? 
It's a reference to what we were talking about this morning in the service. The law of God. You go back in your Bible just a few pages to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 15. And you'll see what it says there of what Christ has done. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man so making peace. The law of commandments contained in ordinances. This is the handwriting of ordinances that Paul is talking about in Colossians. A law, the law of God that was and is against us. You see, by nature, each of us is under the curse of God's law. God's law says, this do and thou shalt live. It says, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And when you don't obey, you're under the condemnation and the curse of the law. Now we talked this morning about the differentiation between the moral, the ceremonial and the civil law. But if you take the whole of that law together... All the moral and ceremonial requirements that we could never have perfectly kept as human beings, Christ himself came and fulfilled that law in every respect. He is the subject of the ceremonial law. All the sacrifices, all of the feast days, everything points to Christ. Everything in the moral law, all the commandments of God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, and so on and so forth. Christ kept all of that perfectly in his life. We learn in Matthew chapter 5, in the words of Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Christ came to fulfill the law. And by his death, the Lord Jesus Christ has taken that whole body of commandments. It's referred to as the handwriting of ordinances. And he has removed it. He has taken it out of the way. In what sense? In the sense that the law that demands that we keep Every aspect of it in order to be saved. It no longer hangs over us in that way. It no longer hangs over us as an unfulfilled obligation. Christ nailed it to his cross. You think of the fact that the law is a code of rules and regulations. But as a means of obtaining eternal life. And as a curse threatening to destroy us for not keeping it, the law has been, to use Paul's words, taken out of the way. Now, a word of explanation is needed here. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. We should understand that under Roman law, When criminals were executed by crucifixion, a copy of the law or the ordinance that they had broken 
was written out. It would be written out on paper or on a placard. Sometimes the nature of their offence, the exact offence, was put onto that placard and nailed above the victim's head. Don't you read in the scripture that there was a placard, there was a, a writing placed above the head of Jesus? What did it say on it? This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. You know that that was a charge that was laid against him? That's why he was being nailed to the cross, because he, in the words of the Jewish people, made himself a king. And they said, we have no king but Caesar. So that was part of his charge. It was nailed on a placard, nailed to his actual cross. There was there, if you like, a handwriting of ordinances, a handwriting of a regulation. Speaking of the offence that he was guilty of. Nailed above his head. That would have been true of the thieves as well that were either side of Jesus. The nature of their offence was written out on that placard and it was nailed above the victim's head so everybody would know when they looked up there at that cross that Rome executed vengeance upon those who violated her criminal code. That's what they understood by that. Pilate put an inscription above Christ's head, being crucified because he made himself a king and was thus considered to be disloyal to the Caesar. But you know, above that cross, God viewed another piece of handwriting. It was not written out there literally. But the ordinances that were given by God to Moses at Mount Sinai. You go back to Exodus chapter 34. You'll see the history of this. Exodus 34, in the first verse, it reads, And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew these two tables of stone, like unto the first, and I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest. What were those words? The Ten Commandments. Now go down the chapter, Exodus 34 to verse 28. And there the Bible says that Moses was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. Look at this. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. The handwriting of ordinances. Now go over a little further in the Pentateuch to the book of Deuteronomy to chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. And of course the book of Deuteronomy uh, refers to, it's often called the book of the second law. And so we have a restatement of the law in Deuteronomy. Verse 1 of chapter 10. At that time, and he's rehearsing that history that I just read in Exodus 34. At that time, the Lord said unto me, Hew these two tables of stone like unto the first, and come up unto me into the mount, and make thee an ark of wood. And I will write on the tables the words that were in the first tables, which thou breakest, and thou shalt put them in the ark. And I made an ark of shittim wood, and hewed two tables of stone like unto the first, and went up into the mount, having the two tables in mine hand, 
And he wrote on the tables, according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments. So there you have, if you like, God's handwriting. The ordinances. And that law, broken by mankind, that law broken by us, the Lord Jesus magnified in his death. He didn't set aside the law. He satisfied the law. And when he was on the cross, he was bearing the penalty of the broken law. What was that penalty? The soul that sinneth it shall die. So Christ died for our sins. He died suffering the penalty of the broken law for us. And that is why when Paul wrote to the Roman church, he said in Romans chapter 10 and verse number 4, For Christ is the end of the law. And there's no period in there. There's no full stop there. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. In other words, the obligation to keep the law perfectly is taken out of the way. We can never obtain salvation by keeping the law. We've already broken it. We can't mend that. Even if we were able to keep the law from now on until we died, it still wouldn't be sufficient. Because we're already lawbreakers. But at Calvary, the great truth is, the law in that condemning sense has been dealt with. This is why we sing in the hymn that's in our hymnal, Free from the law, O happy condition. That doesn't mean that we say, Oh, great, we can now steal because we're free from the law. We can now commit adultery. We can murder people. We can tell lies. We can do all of these things because we're free from the law. No, that's not what it means. Free from the law, O happy condition. Jesus hath bled and there is remission. Cursed by the law and ruined by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us once for all. He has redeemed us from the curse of the broken law. So we're free from its curse. We're free from its condemnation. There's no charge that can be laid against you as a believer. Because Jesus has satisfied those charges in his death. Look at Galatians 3 verse 13. See, Jesus was made a curse. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. But you read then from verse 24 of Galatians 3, a verse that I quoted this morning, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. It leads us, it teaches us, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster, for you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Free from the law. We're no longer under law, but under grace as a way to eternal life. So the first thing we can say in relation to what Christ has done is that the law and its precepts was satisfied. Its precepts were removed. Its precepts were removed, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was 
against us. We are no longer under the condemnation of the law. We are under grace as a way to eternal life. Now let's understand this. Let me emphasize it again. For people to say that you don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments as a believer because the law is fulfilled in Christ is to misunderstand the teaching of Scripture. We're not saying that we're saved by keeping the law. We're saying the opposite. We're not saved by keeping the law. We're saved by Christ keeping the law. However, that law which is not a way to life is definitely for the Christian a way of life. It's something that directs us how to live. You read the Ten Commandments in that way and you'll see that here's how you're supposed to live. You're to worship only one God. You're to worship Him as He has stipulated. You're not to take His name in vain. You're to honor your parents. You're to remember His day. You're not to kill or steal or commit adultery. You're not to be guilty of false witness. And you're not to be covetous. That's how you're to live your life. In connection with God's commandments. Not as a way of getting saved. And not even as a way of remaining saved. But as a matter of evangelical obedience. It's now for us the law of love. We love him. And if we love him, what did Jesus say? Keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. John chapter 14 and verse 15. We were debtors, you see, to perfectly fulfill the demands of God's law. But Christ has paid that debt. And that is the teaching of the third chapter of Romans. From verse 20, Paul says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Nobody's going to get saved by keeping the law. But he does say, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there's no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption of That is in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on to speak about boasting. Verse 27. Where is boasting then? You're going to talk about what a good boy am I? No. Boasting is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Those words of Paul there were taken up by one of our hymns. Boasting excluded, pride I abase. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. Not by law, by grace. He has taken the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. That whole volume of God's law that spoke condemnation. He's taken that out of the way as a matter of condemnation. He satisfied the law for us. And so the law for us has been satisfied. Its precepts were removed. But as well as this, and by the way I wanted to just uh, emphasize that even though that's true that the law is taken out of the way as a means of life, it doesn't mean that we're to be lawless 
Romans 3.21, it clearly says there, uh, verse 31 rather, Romans 3.31, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. There was another place where Paul was able to say that he was not under the law as a way to life. But he said, under the law to Christ. Its precepts were removed. The second thing I want to talk about is this, concerning the law. And what Christ has done in his cross work. The power of the cross is seen in that principalities were routed. Principalities were routed at the cross. This is the significance of Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. Look at this. And having spoiled principalities and powers, Christ made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. That is, in the cross or in his death. This is a statement of Christ's total victory over the powers of darkness. The Savior himself in the days of his flesh, in John 12 and verse 31, talked about the power of darkness. He said this, John 12 and verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. He's talking about the devil there. He's speaking about Satan. And this verse is a statement of the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. You may recall a few weeks ago, we were dealing with that which is known as the Proto-Evangel. The first gospel promise. Remember that? Genesis 3.15, the Lord said to the serpent, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it that's her seed, shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The Lord dealt with Satan, and he dealt with the powers of darkness in the cross. We think of this satanic army, and that's what's in view in this word, principalities and powers. You see that kind of language used in Ephesians. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul was explaining what had happened to those Ephesian believers. They had become Christians. And he talks about the principalities and powers that were in existence. You'll see it there in chapter 1 and in verse 21, where he speaks of the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ, and how that he was exalted far above all principality and power. Principalities and powers, that's the kind of language that Paul uses in different parts of the New Testament. Those principalities and powers have to do with satanic activity. Go over to chapter 6 of Ephesians, that part that talks about the gospel armor. He says, verse 12, 
For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That means merely flesh and blood. Of course, we do wrestle against flesh and blood. And in a sense, there are people who come against us who are unbelievers or who are infidels. But we have to understand that beyond that, there's the principalities and powers. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. He means merely or only against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness, or you could say wicked spirits in high places. This is what Paul is referring to in Colossians chapter 2, when he says that the Lord Jesus Christ has, verse 15, spoiled principalities and powers. He's made a show of them openly. He's triumphed over them in his cross. What he's saying is that the satanic army of of principalities and powers, headed up by the chief devil himself, has not only been defeated, but disgraced by the work of Christ. Christ made a public spectacle of Satan and the demons of hell at the cross. Which is why you don't speak of it, the Lord's death, as a tragedy, but as a triumph. It was not a defeat. It looked like it. Even the disciples themselves thought that. Remember the two on the road to Emmaus? They were so discouraged. They were sad at heart. The Lord had to challenge them about that. Why are you sad? What are you so down about? Well, we thought, we thought that it had been He that would have delivered Israel. They thought that all their hopes in Christ had been dashed. But the opposite was the case. The Lord was right there as the risen Christ. He had overcome death and hell. And Christ made a public spectacle of Satan and the demons of hell. Thus his death was a victory and not a defeat. This is what Ephesians 4 verse 8 is referring to. When we look at this particular verse, it uses terminology that would have been well known to Paul's readers. Ephesians 4 Verse 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. That's a quotation, by the way, from the book of Psalms. But what does it mean? Roman generals of the first century, when they returned triumphantly from battle with their vanquished foes in train, all chained up, being led in a procession. Those vanquished foes were paraded publicly for all to see. And the Roman citizens would line both sides of a highway and watch this train of prisoners being led along with the Roman generals at the head and some of the spoils that had been taken in battle from those foes would be distributed to the Roman soldiers along the way. Those generals would throw out these gifts. Basically the spoils of war. That's what the Lord through Paul is talking about here. When it says he led captivity captive, it means he led a multitude of captives and gave gifts unto men. The Lord led a train of vanquished foes with him, 
when he returned in triumph after the cross, resurrected after what looked like an apparent defeat at the cross, the devil and his minions did not win after all. Looked like they did. But Christ was victorious. He's the one who appeared to Joshua there in the Old Testament. A man with a sword drawn in his hand and he said, I am the captain of the Lord's host. A victorious general. This is Christ, the captain of our salvation. When our Lord ascended up into heaven, he ascended to heaven in a glorious triumph. And that, by the way, is what Paul is referring to there in Ephesians 4 verse 8. When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Christ ascended to heaven in a glorious triumph, displaying the fact that Satan is a defeated foe. Now you and I know as Christians, the devil is not destroyed We wish he was. We wish we didn't have to deal with his oppression and with the temptations of Satan. The devil is not yet destroyed. But here's the thing. The sentence is passed. It just hasn't been fully executed yet. We've read the story all the way through. You know the kinds of people who read books And they can't wait to find out what happens at the end. So they go to the final chapter to read what happens. I don't know if you're one of those. I hope not. But as believers, that's the way we are. We've read the book. We've read how it it finishes. We're not wondering, in the end, does the devil win? No, we understand in the book of Revelation, especially in chapter 20, when the Lord says that he cast... Down the devil, Revelation 20 verse 10, the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's yet future. That's going to happen. And the devil knows it. The devil knows the end of the story. He knows That though he has not yet been fully destroyed, yet the sentence has already been passed and he's just waiting for it to be executed. He goes about today with great wrath, knowing that he hath but a short time. See, we can, as the people of God, rejoice in the victory, therefore, which is not only in Christ, but which is ours in Christ. That's the kind of language that's employed throughout the New Testament. Let me show you three separate scriptures before we finish. Romans chapter 8. That wonderful New Testament chapter of the Spirit. Just notice the number of times the Spirit is mentioned in Romans chapter 8. But in verse 37 of that particular chapter, it says this, Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, Through him that loved us. Then he tells why. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. There they are again. 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. A preacher friend of mine many years ago used to say, I can hang on a rotten corn stalk over hell singing Amazing Grace because I know that I'm never going to be lost. There's a victory that is ours already in Christ. We're on the victory side. Again, Paul uses that sort of terminology in the great chapter of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, what wonderful words are these. In the, in the context of death and the grave. Things that we don't like to think about. Things that really make us shudder with fear sometimes. He says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us, what? The victory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You're on the victory side. Keep at it. Keep working. Keep serving. Because you're on the winning team. If I could use a term like that. And then finally, you have 1 John chapter 4. And verse number 4. 1 John 4. Verse 4. Ye are of God, little children. And have overcome them. And in the context, it is these evil spirits, and especially the spirit of Antichrist, ye have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We're on the victory side. His be the victor's name who fought the fight alone. We share in that great honor of Christ. Today he is seated at the Father's right hand upon his throne. You know where we're going to be seated? On that same throne with Christ. In the book of Revelation, this was a promise that was given to the church at Laodicea. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in His throne. We're on the victory side. The Lord Jesus has blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. He nailed it to His cross. He spoiled the principalities and powers. And He made a, an open show of them, displaying His victory over them, triumphing over them in the cross. The power of the cross is something for believers to rejoice in. May the Lord help us to be thankful for it even tonight.